0: My name is Hemishul and I'm the founder of RX Group and the host of Let's Talk Quality. Let's Talk Quality is a podcast aimed at quality assurance professionals in pharma and biotech. Join us to learn from some of the best QA leaders around the world and hear how they've developed their careers as they provide some practical insights into how they've got to the top of their field. Our mission is to shine a light on what good quality assurance really means for pharma and biotech. What impact does it really have on the patient we want to explore some of the biggest challenges facing the sector and inspire the next generation of quality assurance leaders to continue to help bring safer and better quality therapies to patients. Welcome to season one. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Emily. Hey, Dan.
1: I'm great. Thanks. How are you, Hamish?
0: I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Um, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, do you, we Before we get into it, do you want to give um, the listeners just a high-level overview of who you are um, and what your role is?
1: Sure, happy to do that. So um, I'm, I'm Emily English. I'm the Vice President for Quality at Cartesian Therapeutics. Um, we are an RNA cell therapy locate, uh, company located in Gaithersburg, Maryland, um, in, in the U.S. Um, in my role, I've, which I've been in about two and a half years at this point, I oversee um, the entire quality functions for the company, both the, the QA side and the QC side. Um, we do everything in-house at Cartesian, so we're a fully integrated company doing everything from our own discovery work all the way through process development, analytical development, manufacturing um, our own clinical operations, regulatory, everything is done here under one roof. So we're a pretty tight-knit group with a lot of um, close-knit collaborations uh, that we think you know gives us an advantage as we push programs um, from discovery into the clinic.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, it sounds like a very exciting time for the company. Um, and I know that you were you're, you know, you're, you're quite passionate and excited about what what you guys are doing at Cartesian. So, do you want to? Let's start with, I suppose. Do you want to talk about what exactly Cartesian doing and and why it excites you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mentioned Cartesian is a, an RNA cell therapy company. So, um, we we make a simple change, um, at least on the surface, to the way cell therapies are traditionally manufactured. So, um, for en- most engineered cell therapies that are either in development or on the market. The changes are made to those cells um, at the DNA level. So you introduce a lentiviral vector that uh, encodes into the genome uh, to drive then uh, RNA and then ultimately protein expression in those cells. So rather than make that change at the genetic level of the cells, we actually make it at the RNA level. And and the result of that is a transient modification to cells. So they temporarily express uh, the protein that you've introduced uh, into them. And then they revert to, uh, in, in the case of autologous cell therapies, um, a native state for the patient. Um, and, you know, this ultimately, it, it seems like a relatively simple change to make, but it has some pretty big implications. Um, and so our our mission really is to um, make safe and effective cell therapies. And and we think by making an RNA level change to the cells, you can really um, offer a therapy that has a much more favorable safety profile that you can then push outside um, of where cell therapy has, you know, played to date, which is in late stage oncology indications. And it gives you an opportunity to really drive these therapies out um, into earlier stage in, in the case of oncology, earlier stage patients who are perhaps less sick, um, but also kind of break new ground in, in new disease areas outside of oncology. And so that's really the thing that I find exciting about what Cartesian's doing and um, kind of gets, gets me up in the morning and, and excited to work yeah. on things.
0: Nice, nice. You've answered all my 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 questions that I ask at the end. Now they quick fire questions about what gets you up in the mornings. So, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that's great. Um, and and it's early phase going into sort of late late stage, I guess, over the the coming um, years or year, I guess. Um, like that's- let's talk about some of those implications from.
1: Sure.
0: I suppose your perspective of going start. You know, um, when you start to think about late phase and commercial settings. Um, but f- specifically in an autologous cell therapy landscape?
1: Yep, absolutely. So our lead program is a drug that we call Descartes 8. Um, it is an anti-BCMA RNA CAR T cell. Um, so we, um, it's an autologous therapy. So it, our manufacturing process begins by harvesting cells through apheresis from the patient. Uh, we bring those cells into our facility expand them, introduce an RNA that encodes a chimeric antigen receptor that is specific for BCMA, um, harvest them, cryopreserve preserve them, and then they go back out to the clinic. So um, even in just that sort of short snapshot, I think you can probably sort of uh, grasp the complexity that's involved in, in the supply chains and, and sort of then the, the manufacturing and quality operations that have to accompany that entire workflow. Um, so yeah. our program right now is in a phase 2B study Um, in an autoimmune disease called myasthenia gravis, which is a neuromuscular autoimmune disease. Um, And, you know, we were very, very encouraged by the early open-label data um, that we've we've generated. We published a paper earlier this year in the Lancet Neurology detailing some of those um, findings. But sort of long story short, uh, at least in the open-label setting, it looks like this therapy has the potential to offer, um, with a short course of therapy, a, a very deep and durable Um, therapeutic benefit for the patients and so you know that's given us the conviction to take it now into a phase 2b study where we're going to be stacking 8 up against a placebo um, in what we think is the first placebo controlled trial for an engineered adoptive cell therapy that's ever been conducted Um, Mm. and you know and now we are starting to imagine what the future might look like as we think about you know a phase 3 trial and, and sort of line of sight to commercial um, so, you know, we start to think about, you know, in a startup company, you're always kind of worried about where your risks are and sort of managing for the potential downsides. Like, what if this doesn't go well? What if it, you know, what if we hit a stumbling block here that, or something sort of the unknown unknown pops up, but now we're in a position where we really need to start to plan for success. What if this all works? Um, uh, you know, how will we scale what we're doing? How are we going to make this, um, sustainable and affordable, um, you know, how do we streamline all of the quality processes around our manufacturing to ensure that we get those therapies out to the patients as quickly as possible? As you're in yeah. this sort of autologous world where it's, you know, one lot per patient, that means every time we start a manufacturing run, there's a patient on the other end of that who's waiting for yeah. their product. Um and so yeah. figuring out how to make all that work at scale is now sort of both the challenging the challenge and I think the the excitement that we're we're experiencing.
0: Yeah. Cause you in, in, in the, when you're treating or in autologous cell therapy, you're driven by the number of patients, um, I, I suppose. So, um, how do you go about that? I suppose, um, creating processes for your, for your, your systems and stuff as you try and navigate that, that, that yeah. challenge.
1: It's a, it's a great question. And one that, um, we're certainly working on, and I'm not sure we've a hundred percent landed on exactly the right answer to it yet, but, um, you know, unlike a traditional biologic where your batch size can be quite large and maybe that batch is going to treat hundreds or even thousands of patients. Again, we're we're in this one lot per patient paradigm um, by definition, and we will always be. Uh, you know, so it has the advantage that the the scale of the process that we're running today is the scale of the process that we will be running a year from now, three years from now, five years from now. So that's okay. great because it means we sort of understand what that commercial scale looks like relatively early um in development but um but the the challenge of it is that all of the you know the the quality processes that kind of accompany a gmp manufacturing capability um have to scale as well and so every time we go into production you know on a lot there's opportunities for deviations there's there's opportunities for supply chain challenges and and sort of thinking about um how we build processes to be robust and allow for um you know things to happen quickly Um, how do we get very efficient about, um, lot release about, um, about managing deviations again with the idea that, you know, what's the fastest route from where we are right now when that, that patient product comes into our facility to getting it back out, uh, you know, and infused into them. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's going to be an ongoing challenge. The things that work when you're running, you know, 10 lots in a year don't work as well when you're running 50 lots in a year and probably are not going to work as well when you're running 500 lots in a year. Um, yeah. so, so we really need to, this is the sort of the challenge that's in front of us right now and we're starting to, to think about scale. Which,
0: at what point did you start thinking about that challenge? In, in it? I mean, is it when you get to the clinic? Is it before that? At what, like what time periods are you thinking, did you start thinking, how do we build some systems of scale?
1: You know, I don't know that it is ever too early to start worrying about that. You know, I was at a conference, um, a year or so ago, and I had an opportunity to ask one of the, you know, handful of people who has actually lived this experience, uh, an executive, um, from Bristol Myers, who, you know, had, had gone along for the journey on one of the few commercial, um, CAR T programs that now is, is, uh, is, you know, uh, in, in production. Um, and, He, I asked, you know, if you, if you were, if you could go backwards and teach yourself something sort of at the stage where, where we are, all those of us who are in these earlier stages of clinical development, what, what would be sort of the lessons learned? And and he said two things. He said, um, ensuring supply chain, um, robustness, redundancy, qualifying, you know, multiple vendors, figuring out where you're single threaded and and building in resiliency there. Um, Hmm. and then scaling your quality systems to, um, Uh, to potentially handle sort of an increase in the number of events that you're going to have to deal with as you, as you hit that commercial manufacturing. So I think, you know, the, the challenge is that um, we're not going to necessarily force people, you know, or browbeat them into, you know, doing things hundred percent perfect all the time. And so what we really need to contemplate is how do we put systems around people to drive down the number of of errors that are made um, Mm -hmm. and then to handle them efficiently when they, when they are made, because, you know, um, one of my sort of favorite things to, to remind my team is perfection is not an execution strategy. Um, so we need to always think about how we, we put the right system around the people to give them the supports that, that they need.
0: Um I wanted to ask you a couple of questions just on the on your point around you mentioned when you you spoke to that individual at the conference about um things that he that, you know that you would advise or he would advise or he or she would advise um so you mentioned the supply supply chain um and also um just scaling um, I suppose so um I suppose if you were to summarize your role as a quality leader and how you start planning for success um, mm-hmm. in that autologous cell therapy world. What would you say from an overall you know, top priorities from your point of view, taking it all back to when you were at the start of that journey, if you could pinpoint two or three really high level things that should be top of agenda for you or any quality leader in that space, what would they be?
1: Yeah. So I think um, from my perspective, it's it's a combination of starting to envision the end as early as possible. Um, Mm. you know, and thinking, thinking through sort of what are the things that if, if I envision, I have to take this process that I'm running today and I have to run it instead of running it 10 times, I have to run it 500 times. Where is it going to fall apart? Um, and can we start to, to work on those things, um, you know, now. And Mm. I think from a, um, from a team building perspective, I think that's, really important to communicate out to, to teams. Um, you know, we need those folks to start to think around corners, right. Sort of anticipate where the problem is coming and then, you know, let's, let's head the problems off before they arise. Um, the other thing that, that we are now thinking about a lot on my team is, is as we get more and more experience, we start to see certain kinds of things happen multiple times. Um, and so as we start to see maybe the second or third incident of, of a particular, you know, flavor of, of event, we start to think, okay, does this something that we need to kind of get a little bit more control around, uh, build a process for, um, and, and start to anticipate that, you know, this may just sort of be something that happens from time to time, you know, with our process, with, um, you know, with our, you know, with patient products. I mean, there's all sorts of things when you're in an autologous world, you have all sorts of sources of variation, um, and how do we kind of flex our process to account for that variation and still keep things under good control?
0: It's an interesting one because it's, you've got, it's all about being proactive and um, anticipating what 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 um, what are the challenges that are going to be ahead. When if you don't have that in-house knowledge of people that have gone through it or commercial, it's just a tricky one to navigate.
1: It's it's absolutely right. I mean, there are so few people now who have taken uh, cell therapy all the way through to commercialization. Um, I think you could probably count them on, on one or two hands. Um, and so, you know, for those of us who haven't done it, um, you know, that, that challenge is, is absolutely front and center. Um, yeah. and you know, we just, we try to, you know, that's actually part of the reason why we've, we've done so much in house, um, is to just capitalize on that ability to iterate quickly and, and to learn, um, and improve.
0: Yeah. And you take, you mentioned you've taken your, uh, manufacturing in house, um, what was the reason for that?
1: Yeah. So um, again, sort of going back to this idea of the conventional cell therapies versus sort of the way we do things, we were just different enough in our process that it always has been a little bit of a square peg round hole problem for us, um, you know, with the way that many um, contract organizations are familiar with, with making cell therapy products. So um, in some ways, that just made it obvious that we needed to bring things in house and kind of figure them out. I mean, we we borrow a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and kind of put it all together in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and speed actually has been a major driver of it. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk in the industry about backlogs with um, contract manufacturers and um, you know, for us, the value proposition in bringing it in-house is the ability to put a small team together that could could iterate and learn really, really quickly. And, and the knock-on benefit of that is that we know our process better than anyone at this point. Um, and, and so I think that's going to be a benefit, whether we continue to manufacture in-house as we get bigger or whether we do a tech transfer out to a, a partner organization. Um, I, I think regardless of what where that long-term decision lies, um, you know, the hard one knowledge of, of, doing it in house, um, building both, you know, the process knowledge as well as the quality knowledge around that will be really invaluable to, to the company going forward.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it comes, but it comes with challenges, doesn't it? In I suppose initially, um, so I suppose it's good that you're doing it at this stage, but what, what are the implications? Um, because obviously there's obviously benefits to, to that, to bring yeah. it in house. What mm-hmm. are the challenges that you've faced initially?
1: Um, so, you know, running a facility is challenging. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and ensuring that you, um, you're doing all of the the things that will be required of you from a regulatory perspective, from a quality compliance perspective, um, that you're covering all of the bases. Um, you know, if we get an alarm on a piece of equipment, you know, we, we don't have someone that we can call, right. We have to, you know, come yeah. in and deal with it ourselves. So, you know, making sure that we have all of the systems in place to keep, keep good eyes on our facility, make sure things are running seamlessly, making sure that we, we don't have, um, you know, equipment problems, personnel problems, environmental problems, um, you know, we have to cover all of it. And again, small team, um, trying to do things quickly, that definitely has its challenges, you know, kind of baked into the cake. Um, but, you know, in terms of cost benefit, I, I think, for me, it comes down squarely on the side of it's, it's just much better to do it in house. I think that that's clearly been the right decision for us.
0: Um, tell us a bit about, I suppose, the unique nature of uh, what Cartesian are doing, and in particular, the unique nature of RNA cell therapy, and why it uh, differs to traditional cell therapy. Uh, I say traditional cell therapy with a smile on my face because it hasn't been around for very long. But, um, but yeah, what, what how does it differ, and what are the implications on the manufacturing process?
1: Sure. So uh, let me sort of set the table a little bit um, to draw the contrast between RNA cell therapy and, and DNA cell therapy. Um, and I'll say a few things about sort of the way DNA cell therapy is is produced and delivered, and then kind of draw the contrast to RNA cell therapy. So um, DNA cell therapies are manufactured uh, by making a change to the, the engineered cells at the level of the DNA using um, a lentiviral vector that introduces that genomic change into the cells. Um, typically, they are um, manufactured uh, in numbers of around a few hundred million cells. Um, and before they're infused back into the patient, the patient undergoes a lymphodepleting chemotherapy procedure um, designed to create immunological space for the cells uh, to then expand into. And so those cells are infused. And as they encounter their target, they activate and they divide. And so two cells becomes four cells, becomes eight cells and so on and so forth. And you have this exponential expansion of the cells. Um, That's required in the case of a DNA cell therapy because the cells are actually dosed at a sub-therapeutic level. And that proliferation is actually what brings those cells into, um, into a level where they have a therapeutic benefit. The problem is that the cells don't have a break uh, built into them. And so they continue to expand um, beyond what is a therapeutically effective dose into a regime where you start to see the the toxicities that are, are really sort of expected and routine in the case of DNA cell therapy um, as it's currently delivered. So patients experience cytokine release syndrome, they experience neurotoxicities associated with the delivery of these therapies. Um, those uh, kind of risk-benefit uh, sort of trade-offs are entirely acceptable in the case of late-stage oncology indications where the patients are really out of options. Um, But we've made a change um, moving away from DNA-based engineering to RNA engineering of cells because we believe that um, we can provide a a therapy in in this circumstance that is still potent um, but has a much more favorable safety profile um, for the patients and is going to allow cell therapy to really reach beyond late-stage oncology applications. And so, you know, what is on its surface, perhaps a simple change actually has pretty profound implications for the way that this works. Um, so we do not deliver lymphodepleting chemotherapy to patients up front. Rather, um, we actually make a several orders of magnitude more engineered um, CAR T cells than are, are typically made and delivered for DNA-based therapies. Um, and so we're, what we're trying to do is actually hit that therapeutic window with the dose that we deliver into the patient. So we don't rely... On the proliferation of those cells to get us to a therapeutic benefit we instead come come in with that um, and in the case of rna cell therapy because it's a non-replicating change to the cells um, as those cells encounter their target and start to divide the population of car cells actually decreases so with every cycle of division the population of cells, you know, goes to half, to a quarter, to an eighth, and so on and so forth. So you have this natural dilutive effect. And essentially, what we've been able to do um, is turn a CAR T cell into um, a drug with pharmacokinetics that are much uh, more closely related to what you would expect for a biologic drug, as opposed to a cell therapy. Um, and so again, we don't have to induce. Um, grade three and four hematologic uh, toxicities through lymphodepleting chemotherapy right up front. And then what we've, what we've observed in the patients that have been treated to date um, is that there has been um, you know, no um, CRS and no neurotoxicity associated um, with, with RNA cell therapy um, to date in the patients um, that we've treated on, on the myasthenia trial. And so we're very, very encouraged by that safety profile um and think that that really bodes well for sort of getting getting these cell therapies outside of of oncology and into new therapeutic areas.
0: Yeah, it's really exciting stuff and looking forward to seeing how it all progresses over the next year.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Um we'll we'll have some data hopefully to talk about in the near term obviously the the open label data that we've seen so far. Um has has shown us that we think we have um, deep and durable responses. Um, so in the case of the myasthenia trial, we deliver um, infusions to patients once a week for six weeks, and then we stop. Um, and we monitor the patients out for a year on, on the study. And so far, we've seen um, pretty long-term responses. The patients have maintained their response out, out to those, um, those longer time points. So um, again, we just think that... Um, that product profile, that target product profile is going to, going to play out very, very well in in autoimmune disease in particular.
0: Um, I want to talk to you a bit about your, I guess, your leadership and um, how you go about your communication style and, and building your team as you grow to scale. Um, mm-hmm. It's an obviously an exciting time, but how? how what is your leadership style and, and how do you bring people along on the journey?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the three sort of Values I think that I that I try to create as a matter of culture on our team um, are transparency, curiosity, and collaboration. Um, so you know we I've I've talked a lot with my team about you know if we if we deal with problems when they're small um, then we require small course corrections. But if we let things fester, if we don't surface them, if we don't collaboratively problem solve, you know things get bigger and then the problem gets much more. Um, much more time intensive, much more costly and and much more, you know, difficult to, to course correct. Um, and, you know, again, I, I just think we all have to come to work with this idea that we're going to be honest about where we are when we make errors, we're going to deal with them. We're going to collaboratively work together on them and we're going to maintain a sense of curiosity the whole time. So we're, we're constantly trying to ask ourselves, um, you know, what could be better? what haven't we thought about? Is there a new piece of information that has come to light that needs to change how we we think about things how we manage certain processes um, yeah and and then you know just kind of a, a constant open dialogue um, about all of that with the team I think is is really critically important
0: yeah. brilliant well um it's it's a f- hugely exciting area and of and um, I suppose time for you and and the business um, mm-hmm. so you know um there's some really interesting and valuable insights that anyone that's going through that journey um as, as i'm sure there 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 will be uh hopefully lots of people listening to that that can take some some insights away um you've answered a couple of my quick fire questions already, already okay. emily um so i normally ask um i suppose uh well let's start with this i think what and this is an interesting one for you but what in your eyes what do you think makes a uh, a great quality leader?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the person who's driving an organizational culture, and, and as I said, I think one that supports transparency, collaboration, and curiosity. Um, I think that really is my, my number one job is to figure out, you know, who knows what and, um, and what do they have to contribute to the team? Um, you know, it, knowledge isn't helpful if it stays locked away in somebody's head um and and doesn't doesn't get brought to light so um you know our mission is to um, develop safe and effective medicines and make patients lives better um and as a quality organization i think we just need to constantly ask ourselves how we do that better
0: yeah well said um is there anyone that has inspired you in your career
1: yeah, absolutely. Lots of people. I've been quite fortunate um, to have had great mentors throughout my career. Um, and the other thing that is true is it's usually been the case that when I have needed a push in my career, someone has kind of been there to, to give it to me. Um, often, these are folks who are kind of in and out of your life, you know, quickly, and may and yeah. have an impact on you. that's That's quite extraordinary in a short period of time. But if I had to cite sort of one person who I would probably you know, um, identify in this interview, it would be, um, Sam Gelman, who was my, my graduate advisor. Um, and, um, you know, I think that that relationship is so formative for any scientist. And I think if you have a good one, it, it sticks with you, um, and has, you know, sort of these ripple effects throughout the rest of your life. And and he really set such a high standard for excellence, um, you know, among the, the people for himself and then for the, for the people he mentored. And, um, he was someone who just has always has stayed curious throughout his life. Um, you know, he would always be the the person in in our seminars in graduate school who would would ask a brilliant question. Um, so even though he was such a wealth of knowledge, he he never believed that he knew it all, um, and that there was always always more to learn and always something interesting to to ask about the work that anybody was doing. And I think that that spirit of curiosity I find have found you know continuously inspiring.
0: Nice. Um... I normally ask the the the, the final question. I I always ask is um, what gets you up in the morning. You've kind mm-hmm. you've kind of answered that stuff. Yeah. Um. But tell us again what what gets you up in the morning, and I suppose what do you love about your job and your your role at the moment?
1: Yeah. Um. So I like a big swing of an idea. Um. I think that's really the thing that that drives me. Um. Perhaps more than just about anything else. So an idea that you can kind of wrap your head around and, and get inspired by, and the idea that Um, we could make seemingly a simple change in the way cell therapies are made that should have dramatic positive benefits in terms of, um, you know, safety that then allows us to go out and tackle diseases that haven't been tackled um, in the cell therapy space before. I I find to be, you know, truly inspiring. Um, I love to solve problems. So that's the other thing that, that I really enjoy. And Cartesian's really a pretty unique environment. Again, having everybody under one roof um I can easily go and talk to anyone in a day in our research department and our clinical operations department um, and and the ability to kind of reach across disciplines um, understand how quality really kind of is a bit of a linchpin function that that ultimately reaches out and, and touches and interfaces with all of these areas um, you know and I, it's it's just it's been a very exciting um, place to work
0: for um it, it sounds like a really exciting place to work it sounds like a really exciting time for you as a leader um in quality and and in the in as part of the um I suppose leadership team of the business and um we'll have to do another conversation have another conversation in a, a podcast in about 12 months time to see where where things are at and if we're um if we're close to getting a uh, getting um you know some um BLAs and approvals um
1: it, it would be my my pleasure i think um you know this time next year we hope that we'll be um, ramping up to our to our phase three study and and you know sitting yeah. on some hopefully some knock on wood um, you know positive data that'll be coming out next yeah. year so um yeah it's it's absolutely an exciting time It'd be my pleasure to come back and talk again
0: well I'll, I'll hold you to that Emily. um listen thank you very much if, if people if anyone wants to reach out to you for either advice or um, or, or whatever it may be is, is linkedin generally the best way
1: yeah linkedin is absolutely the best way to, to reach me yep
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, Emily. Some really good insights into your world. Um, and um, and I definitely am excited to see where, where it goes and, um, and have you on again in the future.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Pleasure. Thanks, Emily. Thank you for listening to today's show. I hope that you got value from it, whether you're starting your career in quality or if you're at the top of your field. Today's episode was brought to you by RX Group. I'm the founder of RX Group. We are a pharma and biotech recruitment organization focusing purely on quality assurance. We recruit consultants and senior level permanent quality professionals into the pharma and biotech industry. If we can support you, whether that be in a hiring capacity or if you yourself are looking for work, Please get in touch with me on LinkedIn, visit our LinkedIn page where you can subscribe to the podcast and visit our website www.rx-group.io to find out more about us. See you soon.